then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy, and they are true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Today we're continuing our series uh, called Signs as we work through the book of Revelation and we are on the, uh, the home stretch. And so uh, next week uh, we will uh, cover chapter 19 and half of chapter 20 and the following week we're going to wrap this thing up. And so two more weeks and then we're going to kick off a new series as well uh, called Upside Down happening in a few weeks. I promise you, just a pastor promise, that that new series will be incredibly awesome. Uh, looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6, and so uh, actually Matthew chapter 5, uh, as we look at the Beatitudes. So that's coming uh, in a few weeks as well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. And as you're turning there, uh, I'm going to kind of try to explain to you, uh, if you're a first-time guest or you have been in and out this summer, enjoying uh, some time away. I'm going to try to wrap up the book of Revelation for you in about three minutes, and then we're going to dive into chapter 18. And then here's another pastor promise. We're going to get out a little early today on this Labor Day weekend. Amen? Okay, so let's go ahead and give the Lord a hand. Amen? Like, yeah, he's just, it's, he's good. Okay, so here's the here's what the book of Revelation is. The book of Revelation is a book given by God ultimately to, to Jesus, uh, then in a sense to an angel. An angel gives this to John. John writes it down, gives it to the churches. He goes, hey, blessed are those who speak about these things and blessed are those who hear it. The idea is blessed are those who take the time to know and understand the will of God, not only now, but here to come. And John begins to unfold this book and what he sees in the heavenlies. In chapter 4, he sees God on the throne. In chapter 5, he, he sees that not only is God worthy, but he's surrounded by elders and he's surrounded by witnesses and uh, people who have come to know God in the past ages. And um, you see uh, that John begins to weep in chapter 5 because he doesn't know what's going to happen. And, and there's a 
Uh, there's God on the throne. He has uh, this, this scroll with seven seals and uh, he begins to weep because he doesn't know if anybody's going to be worthy to open it. And uh, then all at once, an angel says, no, listen, there is one who's worthy to open the this, this scroll. His name is Jesus. He's the lamb that was slain. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then John begins to, in a sense, rejoice. And, and then you see him begin to unfold it. In chapter six, he's going to give us the picture of, uh, of what this, the seals are. These seals are judgments of God. And these judgments come during a seven-year tribulation period. Now, if you look at your Bible, you may wonder, well, what, what is Revelation all about? And here's what it is. It's God's final judgment on the earth. And it's going to happen during a seven-year period in which, in chapter 4, I believe the church, people who know Jesus and follow him or are filled with the Spirit, are going to be raptured out of the world. I believe that's going to leave utter chaos and darkness in the world. A world without Jesus is chaotic, right? Our world's already chaotic with people who know Jesus. Imagine taking all of the people who know Jesus out of the world. That's chaos. As chaos ensues, uh, we see from Revelation chapter 10 all the way through about uh, 15, you see these different characters pop up in in the book of Revelation. Well, in these seven years, there's going to be one that's going to come out of a, a, a world coalition. And that coalition, I think, is going to be Rome revived. So the Roman Empire that ruled in Jesus' day is going to be revived. Daniel tells us, Ezekiel tells us different parts of these things, uh, that it's going to be a 10-nation coalition. That coalition is going to uh, ultimately come together. They're going to have kings. There's going to be one king that ultimately rises above all of them. He's going to usurp all their authority. He's going to set himself up like God, and he's going to be called Antichrist. And Antichrist means that he's going to be like God. He's going to try to serve like God. He's going to try to rule like God. The only difference is, is that he won't be God. But what he's going to do is in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, Daniel tells us that he's going to make peace with his nation called Israel. He's going to serve them. They're going to believe that he is indeed worthy of worship and worthy of, uh, of their affection. And then something's going to happen. He's going to set himself up as not only a king, but he's going to try to set himself up as God. And so about three and a half years in the tribulation period, after a handful of those seals are opened in Revelation 6, he's going to begin trying to get people to bow down and worship him. It's going to be that of Nebuchadnezzar in, the, in Daniel. And Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar built this big statue and he said, hey, if you don't bow down to the statue, then I'm going to throw you in to a fiery furnace. That's what Antichrist is going to do. Antichrist is going to sit in Jerusalem uh, in a rebuilt temple, the third temple in our Bible, and he's going to declare that people will worship him, that they uh, should adorn him, should bow to him, should bend to him. And if they don't uh, bend to him, take the mark of the beast, which is the number 666, the number of man. Then he goes, I have no time for you. It's going to be just like Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to, I'm going to do away with you. And so as he does that, he's going to accomplish what we talked about last week in Revelation chapter 17. He's going to do away with Babylon and the idea of false thinking, a world religious system. We're even in a world religious system now. You got, I mean, you've, got, uh, you've got some people who believe in a new age movement. You've got some uh, who perhaps might even be attending a, a church right now in Dallas called Baha'i Faith, and it's just uh, relative. Uh, you believe whatever you want to believe. You just all come. We're going to coexist and get along. How's that one work? No real truth, no real direction. It's just, this is who we are. We'll all get along. We'll coexist of sorts. Uh, there are people who now believe in 
philosophical ideals and things like Confucius and Plato and all these other thinkings. There are some that are Mormons or Muslims or Buddhists or Jehovah's Witnesses. There's all of these different things. And in that last day, you're going to have the Antichrist and he's going to go, listen, we're done with all that. Whatever you have been, whatever you were, whatever you think you are is no more. And if you're not going to worship me, then I'm going to do away with you. And in that last day, Babylon, ungodly thinking is going to become more ungodly as they worship one man who sets himself up. He's going to have a false prophet and he's going to, in a sense, preach and people are going to come and they're going to worship Antichrist all the while. While that's happening, uh, Genesis 11 tells us there's going to be two men who are going to be witnesses, or not Genesis 11, did I say that? Revelation 11 says there's going to be two witnesses. They're going to be going preaching. There's going to be 144,000 of them that join them. They're going to be preaching. The Jews are going to realize that three and a half year mark when this guy sets himself on the throne, that he's going, oh, he's false. And then here comes God, Revelation 12, he's going to sweep through the city and there are going to be many Jews who are going to see Jesus finally. It's going to take them forever, but they're finally going to realize, oh my goodness, we've been duped. Our eyes have been blinded. They're going to be opened. God's going to rescue them. He's going to do away with this world religion system. Antichrist is going to think he's got it together. And under his rule, while Israel has escaped, many martyrs have been killed. Many people have uh, been running for their lives. There have been famines and wars and rumor wars. There have been earthquakes and there have been other significant events as God has brought trumpet judgments and in Revelation 16, bold judgments, and it's all going to get to the end. And when you get to Revelation 18, you are at the end. And here's what you're at the end of. You're at the end of Babylon. Not Babylon, the religious system that we talked about, but Babylon, the political and economical system that Antichrist is going to establish. So what he's going to do is he's going to set himself on the throne. He's going to, I'm worthy to be worshipped. And by the way, if you don't worship me, you don't buy, sell, or trade, Revelation 6. If you don't worship me, you don't eat. If you don't worship me, you don't have amenities and luxuries. So let me ask you a question. If you're left in that last three and a half year period, and you're hungry, and you want to be someone, do you know what you do? You fall in line. You take the mark of the beast. You decide that he's going to be the king. You worship him. You eat. You live it up in luxury. And you know what happens to you? Revelation 19, God comes in through his son Jesus, and he brings destruction. The deal is you either align with Antichrist or you align yourself with God most in that day. Once you get to this point, the very last days, perhaps maybe last months of this seven-year period, when you align yourself with the adversary, Antichrist, Satan, his followers, the false prophet, then guess what? Judgment's coming, and that's Revelation 18. Okay, let's pray and go home. Awesome. I told you it's going to let you out early today, okay? Uh, Revelation 18, verse 1. Here we go. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So here it is. When you get to Revelation 18, you've got another um, angel that's coming. Verse 2 tells us that he's got a mighty voice. The idea is he's a strong angel. He's dressed in bright glory. The idea is that he, uh, though we don't know if he's perhaps one of the ones that has brought part of the seals or the trumpet or even the bowl judgments. We don't know. We just know this, this is a, a strong angel. He has a, a voice from God and he has a declaration. And he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, by Babylon the great is referred to as a city and ultimately 
uh, in a sense, a people. And here, when you see fallen, fallen, this is not the first time you've seen it. You see it in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. You see it in Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 17. Again, here in Revelation chapter 18, you'll see it again in Revelation chapter 19. The emphatic part of this is that Revelation is showing that in the very last days, this world that is corrupt without God is going to fail. It is going to fall, and ultimately, it's going to be judged. And when you get to Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, where it says fallen, fallen, it's an aorist tense verb, which means it's in fullness and complete, meaning it's a complete and final destruction of this place called Babylon. The latter part of that verse says, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. The idea is this, is that in this last day, this, this idea of Babylon not only the religious thought and people coexisting, but when you get to here, this political and economical system is full of darkness. It's, it's death, it's destruction. People's eyes are blinded to the truth. They cannot see and they refuse to see. In, meanwhile, as there's this darkness and it's detestable practices happening throughout the culture of the world in that day, you get to verse three and it says, for all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. The idea is everybody in this culture is benefiting from the darkness. That in a dark, corrupt land, there are people that are lobbying for more corruption. And as you have corruption in high places, it filters down and people are getting rich. And in a sense, they are being seduced by the drunkenness and the wine of Babylonian thoughts in a political world system. Now, I know that today we don't have corruption like that in high places, right? (laughs) You got nobody making money off of political gain. It happens, doesn't it? And I'm, I'm assuming that we probably don't know the half of it. But what I want you to realize is that this day, it's going to be very clear. And it's not only going to be clear that there's darkness and depravity and sin and detestable practices, but it's going to be very clear that there are going to be many kings of the earth that in a sense are going to fall in line with this political economic system. They're going to be willing to worship Antichrist. They're going to be willing to fall, follow him. And here's why, because they become filthy rich. They are in a sense being seduced by luxurious living and they are okay with it. They have grown rich and in the rebellion. And so here it is, verse four says, then I heard another voice from the heavens saying, come out of her, My people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as the heavens. And God remembered her iniquities. And so here it is. It's almost as if there's this last call, this last call from the heavens, that even in their sin and even in their depravity, God's grace, even as the bold judgments are probably about to all be poured out, it's as if God's saying, hey, don't get in bed with the world. Don't be seduced by luxurious living. It reminds you so clearly of what Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust rust and moth destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
See, what you need to realize is that as Jesus talks about things like the world, he's talking about a system now that ultimately will become even more corrupt than what you and I think or know today. And God says, and I'm going to sweep through it. I'm going to judge it. And it's as if in this last attempt of verse four, he's saying, what would it look like if you came out? You remember Sodom, Gomorrah, this corrupt place in which God brought uh, literally uh, pillars of fire down on this place. He brought corruption. He goes, hey, come out of her. And you remember what he told Lot? He said, Lot, come and you'll be saved. And Lot runs out of the city and his wife, watch, she looks back and she turns into a pillar of salt. Jesus has no time for people who look back. Jesus says, deny yourselves, take up the cross and come and follow me. Jesus is not into double-minded duplicity. Jesus is not into people coming to church for financial gain. Jesus is not coming for, uh, he's not into people making a name for themselves. Jesus is in people who would deny themselves, die to their thoughts, be crucified with cross. Galatians 2.20, no longer live. Why? Because it's Christ that lives in us. That's what he's looking for. And even in this, it's as if he says, hey, come out, lest you would take part. And that's just a, a simple reminder of what happens in Sodom. Then in verse five, it says, come out because of the plagues, because their sins are heaped as high as heaven. It's just a reminder there of Genesis 11. It's a reminder of the Tower of Babel yet again. Hey, God has no place for someone who comes and makes a name for themselves and builds a tower as high as the heavens. He goes, I will topple them down. And he says, God has remembered their iniquities. Verse six, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for a cup and the cup that she has mixed. And as you get to this, this verse in chapter six, it, it's a reminder of this principle called lex talionis. Lex talionis is where you get in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's the very thing that Jesus talked about. He, he even encouraged us to not give eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said. Jesus is offering forgiveness, but one day God is going to pour out his vengeance and he is going to give eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There will be uh, vengeance and there will be judgment and destruction for every sin that is committed. And not only will it be atoned for in that sense, there will be a double portion for the cup that this city full of idolatry and wickedness and pollution and darkness and corruption has caused because of people's desire for financial gain at the top. Verse seven says, and she glorified herself in, luxurious, uh, in, in luxury and she lived in luxury. The idea here is um, she being the, the idea of Babylon, this, this thought of luxury. She glorifies herself in it. Matter of fact, she, it says that she would give like a measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she would say, I sit as a queen, I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. The idea, she goes, I sit in my penthouse, I am untouchable, I am no widow, I am not alone. I have everything at my fingertips. Everything is at my beck and call. And mourning I shall never see. It's the idea that they would say, this will never come to an end. You remember that girl that you dated in junior high and you thought to yourself, this will never come to an end. This is the best thing. It will never come to an end. And then there was your freshman year, right? This is the idea. This is so good, it will never come to an end. And it will. 
Verse eight says, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. If you underline that, come in a single day, it was just one of many references of how fast and how swiftly and how expeditiously God's judgment will come. It will come quickly and swiftly. Matter of fact, you'll see it again in the latter part of verse 10. You'll see it in 17 and 19, and it'll be reduced not from just a single day, but it'll come swiftly in an hour. It's the idea that when God finally brings his judgment, he is coming quickly and judiciously, and he will not miss anything. Matter of fact, he'll mix a double portion for the judgment. The latter part of verse 8 says, Death and mourning and famine and she'll be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord, the God who judged her. The idea is that people wait thinking that they still have time and when God comes, there is no more time. It really is even in this day and age, you ever try to share your faith with someone and they just, they in a sense put you off and the idea is, is I, I've got more time. And, and it could be a, a 30 year old or it could be a 50 year old or it could be a 70 year old, but when you talk to them, they just... They feel convinced in their mind that two things will never happen. One, they'll never die. And two, they still have more time. And the idea here is this, is that in this city, though there's luxurious uh, living and though there are people who are corrupt to the very top, they say, we still have more time. This is the best life we've ever had. And yet it's all about to fade away. Verse 9 says, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and well over her when they see the smoke of her burning. The idea is, is that Babylon is, is this world system, and it, and it almost gives you the idea that there's this city, right? This grand city, this uh, emerald city of sorts that everybody looks to find. And, but then it looks as if there's people on the outside looking in. Here's what we know. We know that ultimately God is going to strike the very heart of Babylon when he brings judgment. That will be Antichrist and his closest followers. But even people will look on and will see. It's the idea that when you read Revelation 18, that it's not God just sweeping the whole world in one mere second, but it's as if there's a couple of stages where people can look on and see it. And it's hard to know, is that a part of the, the bold judgments? Is it a little different than say Revelation 19 uh, when Jesus is going to, in a sense, bring his power and vengeance here in one more chapter. Here's what we know. We know that God's going to bring judgment. And it appears that if it's in enough stages where people who are looking on can make comments. And so some of the comments are from the kings of the earth. And the idea is it's from the men who've gotten in bed with Antichrist, who've gladly taken the mark of the beast, who've gladly in their corruption made lots of money and lived in indulgement. They have committed sexual immorality. When you read this imagery, you almost think, oh, people, and it's just sex and pleasure, and it will be that. But what it's specifically thinking about, it's, it's the man that came down from Georgia, and he sold out his entire soul to the devil and his adversaries. That's the idea. Never thought I'd reference that song in a sermon. <laughs> That's the idea. Do you got it? And here it is in their immorality and in their luxurious living, it all comes down and they see it and they weep and they well and they mourn. And verse eight says, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, she'll be burned up. As that happens, 
you've got these kings that are weeping and welling over the smoke of a burning in verse 9. So verse 8 and 9 just tie together. And verse 10 says, they will stand far off in fear of torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. What they do is they literally mourn from a distance and they go, oh, the city, it's gone. The city is gone. And they begin to just mourn and well. It's as if all of their hope has crashed. It is the stock market. It is the, the nation all tied up in one, all before their eyes, up in flames. The smoke is rising and they begin to weep because they know that everything that they have built into, bought into, spent time and luxury and living in is now fading away. It is as if their heart is struck and they have been weighed and counted and balanced. It's a reminder of Daniel 5. It's the Babylonians being seized by the Persians in one single fell swoop, an evening in Daniel chapter 5. The handwriting on the wall one of the favorite lines in scripture is the many, many tackle parson. It's the idea that this city has been, has been weighed, it has been counted, and it has been balanced. The idea that their, their deeds have been put on the scale before God, they didn't measure up, and he now has to do away with it in judgment. Just as he did away with the nation Babylon in Daniel chapter 5 in the hands of the Medes and the Persians, he is now going to do away with this world system. They have been weighed, they have been counted, they have been balanced, and God will sweep in and he will remove them from the high places. Verse 11, not only do kings look on, but look, the merchants of the earth weep. There are not just kings that are benefiting from this world system. There are people, I mean, even merchants, people who make furniture and gold and silver, people who, um, who make clothing, they're all becoming rich in their indulgence. Even though there's been famine in the land, Revelation 6, there are many people who are, are still hoarding the choice food and, and, and wine. There are many people who are still living in luxury. And these merchants of the earth are even going to be in mourning. Verse 11, it says, they weep and they mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. There is no money. The, the market has collapsed. The city is up in flames and in fire and smoke. There is nothing to buy and sell and trade. So even now the merchants are affected. So from the very top to the very bottom, everyone now in this world system has lost what they thought was so good. And you go, well, what all is destroyed? I mean, is it just the stock market? Is that all that crashes? Is it just the one world dollar that fades away? And the answer is no. Matter of fact, you'll see a multitude of things. And, and I, just write them down as we go. It says cargo of gold, silver, and jewels and pearls are, are what? They're destroyed. So all their wealth and their luxurious stones are now depleted. Fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth. It's gone. All their clothing is dissipated before their eyes. All kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. All of their luxurious penthouse furniture is not only destroyed, but guess what? You can't sell it because there's no one that has the, the funds to buy it. Their economy has literally collapsed right before their eyes. Verse 13, it says their cinnamon, spice, and incense, their myrrh and frankincense, all their luxurious spices and scents are, are gone. Their wine, their oil, their fine flour, their wheat, all their food sources are gone. Their cattle, their sheep, their horses, their chariots, all their power, all of their stability is laid barren and in waste. Their slaves, that is human souls are gone, meaning lives will be gone. God is all powerful. 
He is worthy of worship and affection and he will get worthy affection and worship in the last days. And so this whole system is laid barren. Verse 14 says, the fruit of which your soul longed for has gone from you and all of your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of torment, weeping and mourning aloud. They're trying to distance themselves now because they know that judgment is coming. It's right around the corner. They long for these delicacies and the splendors of this living and now it's gone. These merchants are, are in, tr- in trembling nature. Verse 16 says, But alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and fine uh, with pearls. In a single hour, all the wealth has been laid waste. Did you notice how it went from a single day to now a single hour? The idea is just that it's a swift judgment. Now catch this. It's not just kings that are affected. It's not just those in power, but it's merchants. But not only merchants, it's even affected those who carry goods and services to merchants. It's the seafaring men. Look at in verse 17, all the shipmasters, the seafaring men, sailors, all those trade on the sea, they stood far off and they cried aloud as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? They go, what are we going to do? It is all gone. It is, it is dissipated before our eyes. Verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads and they wept and they mourned, crying aloud, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid in waste. And a holy God has depleted this world system of corruption. Antichrist will be destroyed. His throne will be destroyed. Those who follow him will be destroyed, depleted. And God is going to bring a swift judgment. Double the cup of the portion in which they have committed against their sins, he will repay every deed of evil. And when that happens, I want you to know that you're at the very end. You are at the very end at Revelation chapter 16, where the earth shakes, where it grows dark and the, the world trembles and lightning flashes and peals of thunder all happen. It is as if the scrolls rolled back and Jesus is coming. It is the very last moment this city falls, corruption is dissipated, it's destroyed and done away with. And when that happens, I want you to know that every saint, every martyr, every angelic being in the heaven will begin to rejoice. And here's why. Because God's purposes on earth are finally vindicated. This holy God who has never done any wrong, nor thought a a single thought that was not holy and pure, has now made himself known and will reveal himself in expedient judgment. And people will see and know that he is God. Many will be cast away from him, but many, those who lost their lives in the tribulation, as well as people that, like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, will ultimately be redeemed for their martyrdom. And Old Testament prophets, all, in a sense, will, what, rejoice. Matter of fact, verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. People have been vindicated for their belief in God. Though they have been martyred because of their belief in Jesus, they will be vindicated and they will rejoice. And what's interesting here is for us to work through this. Because even now, when we see evil judged, we rejoice. But the question is, is how do you rejoice when evil is judged and God is vindicated and yet not do that in a way that ultimately takes 
pleasure in the death of the wicked. Because God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of these people. That's what's so interesting about God, trying to figure him out. Ezekiel chapter 18 tells us that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not delight when these people who've surrendered themselves over this world system, he does not delight in sending them to a place called hell. He does not delight in people not knowing him. Matter of fact, the reason that he hasn't come already is because he is patient, longing that no one in this room would perish. God does not want us to spend a single day away from him in eternity. That's why he sent his son. That's why his son should be made available to all the nations of the earth. That's why you and I should go and we should preach. And that's why we should pray for people in Kerala that even in devastating floods, that people might see the goodness of the work of the hands and feet of Jesus, the church, that they might turn to Jesus, even though right now that's not the desire of their worship. It's why we pray for people seeing that God would find no pleasure in the death of wicked people. It's why we should make his name known among the nations. It's why we go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. It's why we preach and baptize. Do y'all catch that? And so we don't delight when government brings judgment upon land. We, we know there's a role for government, but here's the deal. You and I have to be very careful that we're not patriots before we are Christians. Because how, how, as a patriot, do you rejoice when a man dies and yet he dies apart from the saving work and knowledge of Jesus? See, the, the goal here is this, is that you and I would have the same attitude as Christ, that we rejoice that evil is accomplished and ultimately done because Jesus will vindicate his ways and his purposes, but also grieving that there will be many in that day that will depart from his presence forever. And if you think that this is hell on earth, listen, this is nothing compared to the eternity that people will spend away from the saving work of Jesus. And so we ought to be praying and thinking in that way. You know, there's only one other time where I would see that Jesus might would actually have delighted in judging evil. Because here he, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But in Isaiah 53, it pleased him to crush his son. It actually blessed him to bring evil and its purposes to a head. And when he killed his son, Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, it pleased God to vindicate the wrath that's going to be revealed in this last day and a final wrath on his son, Jesus, that anyone who would believe in him, high and lifted up, John 3, might be saved. So I want to realize in one part, Jesus is being vindicated and God grieves um, over the death of the wicked, and the other he's blessed by killing his son so that evil men might know him. Now, here's the deal. That's why you and I should quite try to blame things on God and even try to figure him out. Because I can't even imagine what it looks like to, to, to be God and to have the mixture of feelings and emotions that he must have. One, grieving at the vindication of judgment on earth and a Babylon that is wicked and rejoicing over a son who was killed so that you and I, who are just as wicked as these men in the last days, would have a saving knowledge of Jesus. Think about that. It should bring salvation to a greater pleasure in our life. Verse 21 says, Then a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it in the sea. All that is the reference from Jeremiah chapter 51, in which the prophet Jeremiah gives you 64 verses about why Babylon should be judged. 
encourage you to read it this week. It'd be fantastic for you to see all the prophecies that will be fulfilled, not only in Babylon's destruction uh, in the 500s, but also in the Babylon's destruction in the last day. They're going to be thrown down into violence and they'll be found no more, meaning God's final judgment is here. And when it comes, verse 22, it says, the sounds of the harpists, musicians, flute players, trumpeteers will be heard and no, you no more. There will be no more joy, no more parties, no more weddings, no more luxurious celebrations. They will be no more. Not only that, there will be no more craftsmen or any craft will be found in you no more. There's no more luxury at all. There's nothing being built. There's nothing being traded. Matter of fact, it says in the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. There is no more industry. It is all dissipated, all depleted. In verse 23, it says, And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. The world came to you, and it was an illusion. It was a mirage. You looked good on the outside, but on the inside, you were like dead men's bones. Matthew 23. That's the problem that God has now with the church. That's why John started this letter to churches like people in this room. God has no time for people who clean themselves up externally, who put on their Sunday best, who show up and go, hey, yeah, my life is together, and yet outside of this place, you are empty. Jesus says something similar to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23 to the Pharisee, right? Why do you continue to wash the outside of the cup and you never do anything about the internal part of the cup? That's what he's talking about with this city. In your sorcery, you looked good on the outside, but you caused men to go to destruction. They found their death in you and this city will be destroyed. And in verse 24, and it says, And her was found in the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who have been slain on the earth. Meaning God will not forget those who have been martyred in his name and for his namesake. In this last day, in this city, they drink the cup of his fury. And yet he reminds himself and all of the heavens that this, this nation, the city called Babylon, not only has fallen, but everything that he took down with her over the time will ultimately be remembered and vindicated. And that's why heaven rejoices. Next week, we're going to see the total and utter destruction, how fast and swiftly it comes. And it comes because there's a man riding a white horse and his name's Jesus. I encourage you to go ahead and read ahead. So you got homework. Here it is. Jeremiah 51 would be a great source. Revelation chapter 19, all the way through half of 20 would be a great source. And then don't forget that this world is not our home. Oh, how quickly we forget it. Let me pray for you. And I hope that you enjoy the few minutes you get out early. Amen, amen. God, you are good. You are worthy of our worship and our affection. Thank you for this time, for this day, for what you want to teach us through this text. God, we know that there's a day that all men who do not know you will receive judgment. They will be weighed, they will be counted, they will be balanced, and ultimately they will not measure up on your scale apart from your son Jesus. And so Lord, we know that there's gonna be a day that many uh, will be 
a part of the plagues of the earth, that their sins that have been heaped as high as heaven will be destroyed. And Lord, we pray that when you come, that everybody would look at you and that the Philippians 2 would be fulfilled, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess before heaven and earth because you are Lord. And so God, remind us of that before it's too late. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.